Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we want to sing a song of worship to you. We want our lives to be living sacrifices of worship to you, a symphony of your praise and honor because you alone are worthy. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would meet with us, God. Lord, I pray that you would free us from every distraction so that we could focus completely on you, so that we could hear your voice speaking through your word. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with me as I, as I open my mouth, as I read the text of Scripture, which is living and active, Lord. I pray that I would feel the weight of that, Lord. But Lord, I pray that I would trust in your spirit and rely on you, that you would protect me from fear, God, that you would protect me from pride, and that you would just allow me to be your messenger of your truth. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here gathered in your name. I pray that as your word goes out, that it would be received, Lord, not merely through our ears, but right to our hearts, God. We want to be worshipers of you. So be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Uh, today is our ninth anniversary as a church. Hard to believe. Very thankful for that. Amen. And to sort of uh, celebrate our ninth anniversary, we're opening our cafe for the very first time. Really excited about that. And yeah, that's worth chapter clapping for, and uh, this week and this week only in celebration of our, of our, uh, of, uh, our anniversary, we are going to be uh, offering coffee for free, and so you can grab a free coffee or a free tea uh, after the service. Uh, ushers are coming up in there in the aisle with, with copies of God's Word right now if you need one, um, and you can turn to Psalm 135. <coughs> Uh, speaking of coffee, you know, the, the legal team over at Tim Hortons has their work cut out uh, for them right now. I'm not sure if you saw this in the news this week, but they're going after a coffee shop uh, in India known as Tim Hortons. <laughs> and there's a, a fair amount of copyright infringement and uh, intellectual property uh, right there that um, they're trying to, uh, trying to get that place either shut down or to change their name. You know, it wasn't really uh, the first, though. In China, there is Tim House. And um, you can see the similarity in logos. In Korea, in the grocery store, you could buy Tim Morton's uh, coffee. And uh, also in South Korea, I guess they just really love Canadian coffee. It's more gender inclusive. They have Kim Horton's. And so we all, we all know, you know, what it's like to sort of spot a, a phony, something that's trying to stand for the real things. You might want to buy a pair of sneakers or sandals or something like this, and, you know, you just, you move one consonant. I'm not sure if, if the K is supposed to be silent, if it's nigh or canai, or, um, or if, you know, if, if you're uh, in, into Star Wars, I'm not sure if you have this action a figure, uh, Star Knight. Little play on words, stars come out at night, and there's Darth Vader riding a white police motorcycle. <laughs> and of course, if you're into sort of the finer things in life, you can always stop in at Dolce and Banana. 
I mean, it's, 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 it's just, it's, <laughs> it kind of just speaks for itself, right? When you, when you know the real thing, when you found the real thing, it seems almost impossible. How could I possibly go back to a, to a cheap knockoff, to some lame substitute? I found the real thing. And today we're going to be talking about worship. And we've been going through our series reviewing what the pillars of Harvest Bible Chapel are and what we're about as a church. And when we think about worship, we need to understand that as Christians, we have found the real thing. And what every human heart longs for and is trying to find fulfillment in all of these other lame knockoff substitutes, we have found it. And that is a reason to lift our voices, to raise our hands, to make a joyful noise with our mouths because we have found what every heart longs for. And so, loved ones, this is what our church is built on, the pillar of worship. Just a quick review, our foundation is Jesus Christ. And then we have four pillars that are built onto that foundation. There's the Word and there's worship, and there's prayer, and there's witnessing. And we believe that when we do those four things, we will remain fixed on the unchangeable foundation of Jesus Christ. And that is what our church is built upon. We're not built upon a particular gifted people. We're not, get, uh, we're not built upon clever strategy. We're not built upon uh, programs. We are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And preaching and prayer and witness and worship, that is what we are about. And that is what we are going after Sunday after Sunday, week after week, in seeking to be a church that brings glory to God, connected to his uh, foundation that he's provided. So in Psalm 135, we're going to sort of get, get some instruction on what does it mean to worship the one true God, what, what has to happen in our lives, in our minds and in our hearts, intellectually and emotionally, what needs to take place inside of us if we are going to be true worshipers? Uh, verse 1 begins by saying, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, the actual Hebrew there in verse 1, maybe you might not know a whole lot of Hebrew, but I know you know this, uh, this phrase. is actually, there's three words there in English, but it's one word in Hebrew. It's the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is translated there, praise the Lord. And it's a command that's being given there. We are commanded in the Bible to praise God, to worship God. Him. And there are three things that need to happen in our lives if we are going to worship Him. Here's the first one we need to recognize His sovereignty. We need to recognize His sovereignty. When we worship, we are recognizing that God is the one who is in control and that we are not the king or the queen. We are not the master of our own soul. We do not determine our own fate. God and God alone is the one who is large and in charge. We must recognize his sovereignty. It says, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of 
the Lord. You can notice there that the word Lord is in all caps, L-O-R-D. This is God's personal name. This is the name that God told Moses at the burning bush. It's actually, God's name here, it's actually a verb. And it's the verb to be. So, so, some people translate it, I am that I am. That God has always existed and always will go on existing. And no one can ever change that. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. He is eternally pre-existent. He is the God who was and is and is uh, to come. And three times in this opening verse, we have the repetition of his name. Praise the Lord. Then it says, praise the name of the Lord. Praise I am that I am, Yahweh. And then it says, give praise, O servants of the Lord. You see, when we, when we come together to worship, we must recognize his sovereignty. We need to know who he is, and then we need to know who we are. We are the servants of the Lord. Three times in the psalm, it calls us those who serve a master who rules over all. And so we recognize his sovereignty. Verse 2 says, Who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. This was written in the Old Testament. We're not really sure when it was. When, when referring to the house of the Lord or the courts of God, that could be referring to the tabernacle, which was a tent when the people were wandering through the wilderness. They, they, they worshipped God in a tent. And then when they settled in Jerusalem, Solomon built a temple. And that was referred to as the house of the Lord. And so we now, we're the servants of the Lord who worship in the house of the Lord. But if you're looking around at these walls and thinking, you know, this is the house of God, you're sadly mistaken. Because the New Testament turns the metaphor all around that, that, we, that we ourselves are the house of the Lord. So when you come to worship as a Christian, you don't come and worship in the house of the Lord. You come to worship as the house of the Lord, with the house of the Lord. And listen, if this building were to fall down tonight and we got together last, next week and stood in a field, we would be in the house of the Lord. Because we, the people, make up the, the house of God. Verse 3 gives the command again, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It says, for the Lord is good. Our God is a good God. He spoke the universe into existence over six days. And at the end of each day, he said, good. It is good. Planets, palm trees, pomegranates, and possums. At every moment, everything God created, he said, it's good. It's, I am a good God, and I have made a good creation. James 1.17 says that every good and every perfect gift comes from God. He is a good God. He's made a good creation, and he has given us good gifts. He is good. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to come together. Things in this life where we're suffering. Things in this life where we're struggling. Things in this life where we're celebrating no matter what it is. We have a good God. And Romans 8.28 says that he causes all things to work together for good. He is a good God and allows everything that happens to come together for our good. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. 
Then it said, sing to his name. The command is given to sing. I know there are some Christians who, when they think about worship, they really zero in on, you know, Romans chapter 12. And my whole life is supposed to be a living sacrifice. And I, you know, I read the Bible and I share my faith and I pray. But I'm just, I don't really like the sound of my voice. And I'm not that into music. And so I just don't really sing. Well, you need to understand. That's fine if you, if you want to believe that and act that way. But you need to understand that you're living in direct disobedience to the word of God. This is, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. Christians sing. Not all religions sing. Some religions, only particular people from a certain caste or or a certain level are are allowed to sing. But in in the body of Christ, we are all commanded to sing. To sing to his name. And then it says, for it is pleasant. The act of singing is being described here. That God is good and that it's good for us. It's good for us. To sing to him. It is pleasant. The, the, the root of that word pleasant involves the word pleasure. That when we come together to sing, when we come together to worship, we're supposed to be having a good time. Sometimes I go to churches and sometimes I look around this church and it seems as though people think the goal is for us to make sure we're not having a good time. It is pleasant. It's supposed to be an enjoyable experience. I was listening to Pastor Robbie who was speaking at a conference down in Oakville uh, this week and he was talking about uh, how God has done a work in our hearts and how that causes us to worship. And he he said, you need to understand what Jesus has done in your heart and then you need to tell your heart to tell your face (laughs) and to express it on your face. I mean, it's okay. Just get your groove on a little bit. It is pleasant To praise the Lord. Sing to his name for it is pleasant. Verse 4 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. He has sovereignly made the decision to choose Jacob. And listen, if you know anything about Jacob, the ankle grabber, you know that Jacob gave God multiple reasons not to choose him. Lying, cheating, stealing, one of the most selfish human beings... And yet God, because he's a sovereign God, didn't wait until Jacob could prove himself and earn to be chosen. No, God, out of his grace, chose Jacob. Listen, I think about my own life. I've given God multiple reasons not to bless me. I've given God multiple reasons not to choose me, to overlook Ted Duncan, to scratch his name off the list, and to, and to choose to bless and to choose someone other than me. But God has made a sovereign choice. Think about it in your own life. You did not initiate the relationship. We talk about people seeking after God. We don't seek after God. We run from him. We're just like Adam and Eve who hid in the garden. But God came looking for Adam and Eve, didn't he? And Jesus said that he had come to seek and to save the lost. He is sovereign and he has sought us and chosen us. Verse 4, go back there. It says, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. He loves us and he he wants us and, and we belong to him as he is our sovereign ruler and king. And verse 5 gets personal. He says, for I know 
He's been speaking in general, but now, now the psalmist says, I know that the Lord is great. He's good and he's great. It's going to talk about the power that God has. The grace that we said before meals in, uh, in my family growing up, and we say it every now and again in our family, is God is great and God is good. And we thank him for this food. Amen. Cha-cha-cha. We had that at the end of, of, our, of our prayer. God is great and God is good. Just imagine, just imagine what this world would be like and what your life would be like if God were simply great but not good. If he possessed all of the power that he had but wasn't good. Who was causing all things to happen all around us but wasn't causing it to work together for our good but causing it to work together for whatever, for evil or malicious intent. We can be thankful that we serve a great God who is also a good God. He is worthy to be praised. I know, verse, verse 5, I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all Gods. I want to show you something here up on, the, uh, up on the screen. This is Psalm 135, verse 5. And the reason why this verse is interesting is because there's three different words used to describe God. And these are the three main Hebrew words used in the entire New Testament or Old Testament in referring to God. So L-O-R-D in all capitals, we already mentioned that. That's Yahweh. That's I am that I am. That's the, that's the name that's a verb, the burning bush. And then the capital L-O-R-D is the word Adonai. And then the lowercase g, gods, is Elohim. Elohim is sometimes capitalized with a capital G. It's sometimes it refers to God, but it's sort of the general term for a spiritual being. And what this verse is saying is that I know that the Lord, I know his name, the true God. I know that the Lord is great. And that our Lord, Adonai, is above all gods, all Elohim, all other spiritual beings, all other religions, all other angels or demons or what any spiritual being. He's above it all. But the key word here is the word Adonai because Adonai means master. Verse 1 says that we're servants of the Lord and that he is our master and Part of worship is recognizing his sovereignty. That he is the one who is in charge. That we don't come to God in worship saying, God, here's all of the things that I want you to do. No, we come to God in worship and say, God, what do you want me to do? Here I am. I am your servant. Speak, Lord, because I'm listening. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll be who you want me to be. You are Adonai, you are our Lord, our master. Then verse 6 gives even greater detail about his sovereignty. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Think about that. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. No one can stand in God's way. He's sovereign. God doesn't answer to a judiciary committee. God never has to invoke a notwithstanding clause. God has never had to fill out a form. God has never had to check off a box saying, I have read the terms and conditions. 
He is sovereign as whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. And this is how we're supposed to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Do what's pleasing to you, God, on earth as it is in heaven. And here it says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the, tr- for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Verse 6 and 7 describe a, a storm. We've got some good friends who live down in North Carolina, and so we're really paying attention to that hurricane that was, uh, that was coming uh, on the East Coast and kind of tracking with them and watching the news. And you know what? You can hardly hear any, any description of any weather event without hearing about climate change. And listen, I, I don't want to get political right now. I don't sort of want to divide the room according to the right, left and the right. Okay, listen. But we need to remember and understand storms come from God. And I, I think there is this sense in which we need to understand that, that we have been entrusted with this, this good creation that God has given to us. And we need to look after it as stewards. It, it's respecting the earth, respecting the environment is part of respecting and worshiping God. And, and in our broader culture, in our media all the time, this, there's this central message that says the world is messed up, the planet is messed up, and it's our fault. And in some sense, I mean, they're hitting it. They're hitting the target, but they're not hitting dead center in the target. The world is messed up, and it is because of us. But it's not just about recycling. It's not just about driving a hybrid vehicle. It's about sin. God created a world and it was good and he created us and, it, and we were good, but Adam and Eve rebelled against God and chose the evil way and this world is cursed. And loved ones, storms come from God. And God's trying to send us a message and it's not that you should buy a Prius. He's sending a message that he is the sovereign ruler over the universe. Listen, by all means, steward the environment. I'm not telling you how to, how to vote. I'm trying not to be, I'm just trying to speak what the Bible tells us. Storms come from God. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Who makes lightnings for the rain. Who brings forth the wind from its storehouses. He determines the category of the storm. It is him, he is sovereign over all of these things. We can hear things so often and we, we can lose sight of what God's word tells us about his sovereignty. So we've got to recognize that God is sovereign. That's really the first step in the worship, in worship because ultimately, apart from knowing this, we would worship ourselves. And we would think that we are the ultimate reason for, uh, for existence. And that that would cause us to become a selfish and only focus on ourselves. But worship sets us free to recognize that God is sovereign. 
trying to live like you're sovereign, but without having the power or the authority to actually act in a sovereign way results in frustration. And maybe you're here today, and you're, you're, the, the banner over your life is, you know, frustrated incorporated. Because you've been trying to live like you're sovereign, but you aren't. You've been trying to manipulate things and arrange things in such a way and things keep coming into your life and it's, it's a continual reminder you want to be in control but you're not in control. And you need to lift up those hands and say, okay God, I surrender. I recognize that you are sovereign. That's where worship starts. Here's the, uh, here's the second component of a, of a heart that is truly worshiping. So we recognize God's sovereignty. Here's the second part. We rejoice in God's salvation. We rejoice in God's salvation. Again, we're looking at a psalm that's written in an, an Old Testament context. And so the, the people of God, the people of Israel are recalling and rejoicing in times in which God came through for them. And how he saved them and, and they rejoice in his salvation. Verse 8. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast. Who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. He's talking about the exodus there. God had rescued the people out of the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And he saved them out of that. Verse, verse 10, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel, they've escaped from Egypt. They've been wandering around the desert for 40 years, and they, they come into Sihon's territory, and they say, listen, we don't have a beef with you. All we want to do is just have safe passage through your territory. Sihon comes back with an army, and starts attacking the people of Israel. They're caught off guard. They pray to God. God comes through and saves them. Then along comes Og, does the exact same thing. Before they even got to the promised land and fought all of those battles. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 21. He, he overcame these enemies. At the end of verse 11 it says, All the kingdoms of Canaan. That's recorded in the book of Joshua. And all of the incredible victories like Jericho. Where God did awesome things to save his people. And then in verse 12 it says, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. They were looking at the land where they were dwelling and they started thinking, you know, this goes beyond, you know, the book of Joshua or the book of Numbers or the book of Exodus. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and the promise that was made to Abraham that his descendants would live in that land. And so the psalmist here is rejoicing in God's salvation by looking back. He's looking at the past and saying, look at all the amazing things that God has done for our people. And loved ones, we can do the same thing. Because we have been freed from a slavery and oppression that was worse than what the Israelites were experiencing in Egypt. A slavery to sin. Wanting to change, but never being able to have that transformation. We have seen a victory over, over enemies that were stronger than Sihon and Og. We had an enemy named Satan and death and hell. And Christ has conquered that 
enemy. And we've received an inheritance that's greater than the promised land. We've received an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we as Christians can look back and look at the cross of Jesus Christ and what, we has, what he has accomplished for us, that he has saved and rescued and redeemed and, rescu- and, and, sorry, and reconciled and justified and forgiven and sealed and adopted us. And all of this has happened because our great king, our sovereign Lord, the nail-scarred, blood-shedding, sin-atoning, wrath-propitiating son of God came to seek us and to save us came and lived a perfect life and suffered as our substitute on the cross so that we could receive that glorious inheritance and receive that kind of victory. So we have an incredible past to look back on, on how Christ has saved us. Maybe you're here today and maybe, maybe this is your present. Maybe today is the day where you finally admit that you are a sinner and that you've rebelled against God. And you confess that you believe that Christ has come to seek you and to save you. That he died in your place. And you're going to commit to follow him. And so now no matter what you're going through, you can look back to this day where you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And rejoice in his salvation. So we get to be able to look back. But as the, as the psalm continues, there's also a looking forward. Look at verse 13. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages, looking forward that God is great and will continue to be great. Verse 14, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And so the psalmist right now, he's going through something, but he knows that there's a vindication that's coming. He's struggling with something. He knows though that God will have compassion. You see, as a Christian, you can look back at this great victory that Christ has won for you, and you can look forward that God will be praised throughout all of the ages. But right here in the middle, you can trust that just as Christ has won that ultimate, enormous, life altering victory on our behalf, He will also go to battle for us in a thousand small victories every moment of every day, that he will indeed have compassion and that he will vindicate his people. And so we recognize his sovereignty, we rejoice in his salvation, and then lastly, we reject his substitutes. We reject his substitutes. Verse 15 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. We, we create our own idols. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them we got to reject his substitutes. We need to be aware of the danger and the futility of idolatry in our lives. Now, I find it interesting that the people of Israel would need to be reminded that this is even in the book of Psalms. I mean, don't they know by now that their God is the true God? Haven't they recognized his sovereignty and rejoice in his salvation? I mean, why would they even possibly turn to an idol? You know, I, I think it's incredible this all mentions the plagues in Egypt. 
My friend was sharing with me this week about how each and every plague that God performed in Egypt was actually an affront to the Egyptian idols. Remember the part about the frogs? That's the one that was the most troubling to me. Frogs everywhere. But it mentions frogs being in two places, in their pots and in their beds. And do you know that the Egyptian goddess of fertility had a frog head? And why do you want fertility? You want fertility in your crops so that you can have more in your pot. Oh, out comes a frog from the pot. And you want fertility in your bedroom so that your family can grow and your armies can become stronger and your your clan can be more powerful. Oh, there's a frog in your bed. Even though the people of Israel had all of these examples, plague after plague, that God was superior, the first command that God had to give his people on Mount Sinai that he thundered down, the first of the Ten Commandments was what? You shall have no other gods before me. Why would they need to be told that? Hasn't it been made clear? The first command, beware of idols. You shall have no other gods before me. And then six weeks later, what are they doing? Gathering up all of the gold and fashioning a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping an idol. We, we, we don't understand how deep and how dangerous the human tendency towards idol worship actually is. Now, some of you are thinking, listen, I was tracking with you, Ted, for the first couple of points, but I don't have a problem with idolatry, man. There's no, some frog-headed statue. I've never bowed down before one. I'm never, well, listen, you, you, you misunderstand what idolatry actually is. The Egyptian people didn't bow down to the frog-head girl because they thought she was beautiful. She had a frog for a head. The idol is a means to an end. They want a bigger family. They want a more prosperous crop. They want to experience sexual pleasure. They want all of these things. Oh, if I bow down to this, then I'll get that. Then of course, it's a means to an end. The reason why the ancient world had idols for everything is because everything has the potential of becoming an idol. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Some of you will remember this diagram from a couple of weeks ago where we talked about where sin comes from. The top box is just a random category. You can put any sin in there. Sexual sin, anger, lying, arrogance, vanity. There's a whole list. And then we talked about how at the end of the day, When we sin, we're really just looking for four things. Power, possessions, people, and pleasure. That is really what we're going after. And that is why we sin. And then if you take it even deeper, we are looking for satisfaction and security. That is what we are trying to fulfill And so, loved ones, when we're talking about idols, power, possession, people, and pleasure, that's the category of idol. People in your lives can become idols that you worship. Money in your life can become something that you worship. Now, you might not sing about it, but the way, listen, worship is more than singing. You might not go around being like, tis so sweet. 
to trust in money. Right? You don't, you don't sing that. Right? You don't sing about the job promotion that you want. You don't sing about your desire to experience pleasure. No, but you live your life. Your whole life is orchestrated around having those desires fulfilled. You see, if you were to break it all down for satisfaction and security, we have a choice. All of life is about worship. When we sing in praise to God, we sing because in Him we have found satisfaction and security. And so we have a choice to make. Are we going to choose to worship an idol or are we going to choose to worship God? Are we going to make the purpose of our life and our source of security and satisfaction to come from that job promotion? Because if that is going to be the focus of our life, we might end up lying on our resume in order to get it. We might end up gossiping about other candidates in order to manipulate things so that we could be upwardly mobile. If that, becomes our, if that idol becomes our God, then that idol will have some commands of its own. Not God's commands, not to love your neighbor, but to do whatever it takes to achieve that idol. And what does that do? Well, if we try to put our satisfaction, our security into an idol, the result is lust and fear. It says right here in Psalm 115, they've got the idols, they've got eyes and they can't see. They've got mouths and they can't talk. You expect the idol to do something for you. To satisfy you, to give you security, but the idol never comes through. And so, the satisfaction isn't fulfilled, which leads to greater lust, a greater desire. And then the security, you don't get any security from that idol. And so that results in fear. And your life is, is characterized by lust and fear. You want satisfaction, but you can't get no satisfaction. Which leads to greater lust and you go through life perpetually unhappy. Even though you have all of these things. Whether you end up getting your idol or you don't. You still feel unfulfilled. Satisfaction can only come from worshiping God. And so it ends up going right back and you end up in this vicious cycle. A new idol. And then that disappoints you. More lust and fear. Seeking after satisfaction and security. But loved ones, when you trust in God, you, your life isn't determined by lust and fear. Your life is determined by contentment and peace. I'll take more of that any day. Contentment. To look around at what you have and to be thankful. And peace. Knowing that God, the sovereign God, loves me and cares for me and he is good and he will cause all things to come together for my good. Loved ones, when we start to live, listen, this is where worship comes from. We sing because we found satisfaction and security in God and in God alone. And here's the real danger, loved ones. Look back at verse 18. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. When we make idols that cannot satisfy, that are ultimately lifeless and empty, and when we trust in idols that cannot satisfy, that are lifeless and empty, we become what we worship. 
Have you experienced this in your life? Have you devoted and worshipped an idol? And in the process, you yourself have become lifeless and empty? Those who make them, those who trust them, become like them. We become what we worship. That's the danger. That's the negative, but there's a flip side. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this. It says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, that's describing our worship of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so when we worship in spirit and in truth, when we truly find satisfaction and security in God alone, we become like what we worship, not lifeless and empty, but filled with life and joy and goodness like the good God that we worship. Would you all like to be more like Jesus? I sure would. And the way to become like Jesus is not by working harder, but worshiping harder. We become what we worship. Don't worship idols. Worship the true and living God. Loved ones, we need to understand this. If you're, if you're right now, if you find yourself in a mess, you need to understand that you worship your way into that mess. You got your eyes and your heart tangled up into some sort of idol and you are where you are because of worship. And I know I'm telling you this because I've been there. We worship our way into the mess. But here's the good news. We worship our way out of the mess. Where we repent and we turn and we reorient our lives. And we confess that we've been seeking satisfaction and security from something other than God. And we come before God and we say, you know what, I'm rejecting your substitutes. I recognize your sovereignty. I rejoice in your salvation. And I am now going to live 100% for you. I'm going to invite the choir and the worship team to come back out as I read to you verses 19 through 21. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. He refers to the the sons of Aaron, the sons of Levi. These are the priests, loved ones. We've been made priests in God's glorious temple. We are now a holy priesthood, the book of 1 Peter tells us. And we are called upon. Notice all the times it says, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Worship him. And then verse 21 says, praise the Lord. The last verse is the same as the first verse. It starts with a hallelujah. It ends with a hallelujah. Our whole life is supposed to be one continual act of praise. And so right now I want to ask you to stand onto your feet. And we are going to worship the one true God. And we are going to sing from our mouths. But the singing is going to come from finding security and satisfaction in the one true God. And so we're sons of Aaron. We're, we're priests 
in the holy temple of God. And we are going to sing out what, what the end of the verse here says. We're going to bless the Lord. And so just join me right now. Let's sing this familiar song. Let's lift our voices.